Well, good morning. We're starting a new series, as just Kevin said, and said the video showed from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So go ahead and turn there. Harmony together is better. We did not make that phrase up, even though we use it as part of our values. So uh, as we start this morning, Paul here will address in these four chapters, or 11 through 14, he will address the matters of corporate worship and body life within the church. So he, we're sort of going to see, as Christ followers, what's it supposed to look like in the body and as we live? We'll talk about things in these chapters like the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, how to relate to one another. And these things are so important as our life together as a church because they touch on the most important things. They touch on our relationships. They'll touch on our serving. They'll touch on our community, our growth, and even our witness to a watching world. So Paul is some ways in these, in, uh, through 11, chapters 11 through 14, letting the Corinthians and us know that you and I cannot be our own church that we are a part of body that is knit together with the shed blood of Christ. And Paul is saying here, what one does affects the whole body. So it's interesting though, and challenging to start with this text, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, two through 16. One of the most challenging texts in the whole Bible maybe, and in 1 Corinthians. As modern readers, when we read this passage, these verses this morning, 2 through 16, I think you will see how puzzling and confusing this text can be when we talk about things like head coverings, angels, long hair, shaved heads. And in some ways, it's so easy to miss the woods for the trees when it comes to this passage and sort of get caught up in all of those side issues instead of the big idea of what Paul is speaking about. It, the other reason is it actually deals with things that are controversial. Not only controversial in our culture, but controversial in any culture. And then there's just some things in here that we don't know what they mean. Like when it says, of the angels. Uh, there's a few thoughts. There's a lot of thoughts, actually, but we do not know. So when I saw this, that I was slated to teach this passage, uh, my, my name got drawn by the sovereign hand of God. I thought I got a couple options. One is I could get Chad or Phil to teach it. <laughs> and uh, I actually, you know, like, hey, maybe I can option this one off to those guys. Uh, the other one I thought happened Monday. I was turkey hunting with Blaine Peterson, and he had left, and I was staying around. It was about lunchtime, and I sat down in some uh, uh, woods where it was shady. It was getting hot, and I was softly calling for that gobbler. And, and I've done that before and dozed off a little bit, and all of a sudden a turkey gobbled right behind me. He's looking at me. He'd heard me call 20 minutes before. So I was doing that, and I sort of nodded off. And all of a sudden, I heard rustling in the leaves. And I thought, oh, no. Out of my sleepy slumber, I thought, there's a turkey right there. And as I turned my head real slow, I saw a snake 
looking at me 12 inches away, flicking his tongue. (laughs) And I thought, if that's a poisonous snake, I could let him bite me and I'd be too sick to preach this text. (laughs) So I just, it was a black snake. So I... I jumped up, he jumped up, we both screamed and ran opposite ways. It didn't work. But in all honesty, I didn't consider any of those. You know if you've been around Fellowship Bible Church enough, we don't hesitate or withdraw from teaching through difficult and maybe even controversial passages. And the reason is these are God's very words to us. They have something to say to us. He is a wise and good God, and he knows what we need more than we need know that we need it. So we'll move right through it this morning. But to do that this morning, maybe, maybe more than usual, we need to back up a minute, and we first need to understand the situation that's going on in Corinth. And then secondly, we need to understand verse 3, because verse 3 is talks about God's divine authority structure for male and female. And that's the the heading of the whole passage, the big idea. And out of that, verse 3, Paul defends and makes sense of the rest. And then we'll understand how do we apply a passage like this to us. So the first thing we need to do is understand the situation in Corinth. So we need to remember that first century Corinth was a city in Greece that was fully under the control of the Roman Empire and culture. And as a result of that, they had traditions and they had uh, things in their culture that marked those people deeply. One of those customs was this. If a woman was married, she was to wear a light linen cloth or a veil over her head that came about to her shoulders and it did not cover her face. This was a part of the normal social cultural of Corinth, a visual symbol, the veil was, of her being married, much like our wedding ring. It said to all other men, I am taken, I am my husband's woman. It was a sign of respect to her husband. Also in that culture, women who desired to be seen as modest and feminine they wore these same head coverings or veil or like a small shawl. And so in addition though, there are women who didn't wear the head covering in Corinth and that is women who were sexually loose or actually prostitutes. And we know from my introduction to this book, there were over a thousand prostitutes that lived in a temple in the city of Corinth. So this was a, uh, their business was to be seen if they were gonna have any business at all. So here's what happened. There was a women's liberation movement that rose up in the city of Corinth in that Roman culture, really because fueled by, if you would, a double standard. And the double standard was that men could have many sexual partners and it was totally okay and celebrated. And women, if they had many sexual partners, it was considered scandalous. Now, does that sound familiar? That's sort of the culture we have lived in here too. These women in some ways wanted independence, they wanted autonomy, and they would do one of two things. They would remove their veils to say, you know, I'm, I'm, 
uh, I don't need a man. Or secondly, they would shave their heads to deny their femininity. And so all of that was creeping into the church at Corinth. In some ways, it was a loud and proud statement that was against the sacredness of marriage and femininity in general. So as we look at the issue of wearing, women wearing head coverings or not that's in this passage, we need to understand there are much deeper and bigger things going on under the surface that are more important than what the passage really means. Let, let me just give you an example this morning. So it's not a perfect example, but I think it makes sense. Let's say instead of those little teeny diamonds that women, married women wear when they're married, let's say that every woman in our culture wore a diamond as big as a golf ball. And the women said, amen, like I'm, I'm for that, right? So what I mean is as big as a golf ball, so it's easily seen from across the room. And let's say eight or 10 women came in here on Sunday morning that were married. Our church body knew they were married, but their golf ball sized wedding rings that everybody could see were not on their fingers. Do you think that would cause a distraction and confusion in worship? Yeah, you'd be whispering with your spouse saying, something's going on in their marriage. What in the world's going on? So that's a picture of it. Another would be uh, women shaving their heads and dressing like a man to reject their femaleness or men making themselves look like a female. All of this would be a loud, disruptive, and confusing statement to the body and confusing if we had unbelievers here that morning, confusing for this watching world. They're coming in here thinking we're Christ's followers and there's this confusion and distraction going on. And ultimately, Paul says, it dishonors God. And so this morning, as we set the table, there's two relevant issues. The distinctiveness of female or male and female and this anti-attitude toward the sacredness of marriage between a male and a female. So here's the deal. Paul's exhortation this morning in this passage is to the women of Corinth to apply your cultural standard, which was a veil or a covering, to show clearly who is male and female and to honor your husband and therefore honor God. So let's read this passage. You can see why it is a little, Paul, Paul and I are going to have a chit chat when I get to heaven about how he writes some of these things. I'm sure he'll straighten me out though. So, okay, verse two. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head instead. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. 
Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For a woman was made for man, and so man is now born of a woman. And all these things are from God. You just for yourself, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So can you see how confusing that is, maybe puzzling at first reading? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to understand first God's divine authority for male and femaleness. In these verses, Paul uses the word head 14 times. And the word head means authority. Here's a couple examples of how he used them in this word in other places. Ephesians 1.22. And he, speaking of Christ, he put all things, or God the Father put all things under his feet, Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Paul then speaks again in Ephesians 5.22, speaking of the relationship between the husband and the wife. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So here in 1 Corinthians verse 3, Paul is saying, Christ is the authority over every man, man is the authority over woman, and God the Father is the authority over Christ. This is God's divine structure for male and female. It is his authority structure for how he created the world to work as he intended it to work. So let's think about it this way, okay? And here's what I need you to do, especially you women folks this morning. I need you to hang with me. Don't mentally or emotionally hit eject on me or throw things at me till I get to the end. I think, I think you're going to see it's going to land in a beautiful place. So we need to think about it like this. If Christ does not submit to God the Father, then redemption is not accomplished. And God is at war with himself because his son does not submit. If man does not submit to Christ, the man is lost and judgment falls on him. And if the woman does not submit to the man in the family, the family is shattered. Here's another way to look at it. The son is not inferior to God the Father. They are the same in essence and being, the scripture teaches throughout. Both are God, but they do have different roles to play in the relationship of the Trinity. Paul is saying here, women are not inferior to men in essence and being. Scripture teaches that throughout. Both are made in the image of God, co-heirs with Christ, but they do have different roles and function in the church and in the home. One writer put it this way. He said, whenever Scripture says that God sent the Son into the world, we see the Son's submission role being played out. Now, aren't we glad that Christ submitted to the Father? Jesus, matter of fact, said this, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Both are God. Jesus was a visible representation of 
God the Father, but he does not have a but he does have a different role and function than God the Father. So, Paul says here, a man's leader headship role is theologically driven since creation because Adam was created first. And here's what Paul will do this morning. In this text and in many other texts, Paul safeguards this divine authority of headship structure for men and women from tyranny, from abuse, from selfishness and cruelty. And here's how he does it. This, in this text and others, he shows the father-son relationship, this sacrificial, life-giving relationship of love between the father and the son. So that's, that's sort of the structure this morning of God's divine authority. And so here's what we have to do. If we're going to cry bloody murder over uh, the man being the head of the woman, we have to be cry bloody murder over God the Father being the head of the Son. And we see there we don't have to do that. So Paul lays out this divine structure, the theology of it. He grounds it in Scripture. He says, this is the big idea. This is the truth statement. And out of this theological truth of verse 3, Paul then begins to unpack the implications of this principle. And here's what he does first. He does it in theology applied. Look at verses 4 through 6. He applies verse 3, the theology of verse 3, to this particular situation in Corinth. And he says here in verses 4 through 6, Since Christ is the authority over men, and since men are the authority over women, no man should wear a head covering when he prays and prophesies because Christ is his head and women should wear a covering. Paul says no cover for men during the worship because that is what women would wear and that would be shamefully presenting a man as a woman. He says a woman wore a cover and if she didn't wear a cover, she would be shamelessly presenting herself as a man. So we ask this question. So on what or whom is the man or woman bringing shame? Paul says this. The man dishonors his head. Verse 4. If he wears a cover and is, who is his head? His head is Christ. So the man shames Christ. He says the woman brings shame on her head if she does not wear a cover. And her head is who? The man the husband, or if she's not married, the men are the leaders of the church. It brings shame on the church. So Paul applies theology. Secondly, he defends it in verses 7 through 10. Here's what he does here. Paul defends this point that women should wear a cover and men should not wear a cover. Verse 7, he says, A man should not wear a covering since he is the image and glory of God. But a woman should wear a head covering because she is the glory of man. Now, here's what we know. We know Paul is a smart guy. We know Paul was a scholar of the Old Testament. He knew it backwards and he knew it forwards. So he knows the verse I put on the top of your outline, Genesis 1.27 that men and women are both made in the image of God. So what does he mean here 
by a man should not wear a covering since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman should because she's the glory of man. Well, we need to focus on this word glory. In verses eight and nine, Paul tells us the two reasons women are the glory of men. Look at verse eight. Since since woman came from man, remember that? Genesis two, God created Adam, then he put Adam to sleep. Adam had no input into this creating of a woman. God knocked him out with anesthesia, cold as could be, took a rib out and created woman from him. She was meant to be his glory. Paul's point here is that one should always honor the source in which you came from. A woman therefore honors the man by wearing a head covering, displaying that man is her head or authority. The second reason comes from verse nine. Look at verse nine. Woman is the man's glory because she was created for him. She was created to be a helper for him in the task that God gave them. She was created to bring honor to him. She was created to make man look good. I say this at every wedding and it's straight from the scriptures. The reason the woman was called the helper, which is by the same name, the Holy Spirit is called the helper, and she's in good company, is because men everywhere need help, right? Amen, women? Thank you, a little louder if you want, okay? So, yes. So, so Paul takes verse three. He applies it, he defends it, and then here's what he does, he harmonizes it. You see what I did there, harmony? He harmonizes, he balances this. Here's what's happening. In verses three through 10, Paul presents this strong argument for male headship. And then in verses 11 and 12, what he does here, he uses these two verses as a qualifier, as a balancing act, as to see the other side of it. And we know that we look at verse 11, the word nevertheless, the word nevertheless tells us, Paul is saying, I've presented this argument, but now I'm gonna flip it over on its side and I'm gonna show you the backside of it. And this is what safeguards male headship and women's submission from abuse and cruelty. This is the other side of the coin that he balances, balances it with. And this is what he says, Paul, he says, men and women are not independent of each other. What he says in verse 11 and 12, they are interdependent on each other. They mutually complete each other, both in the home and in the church. They rely on each other to carry out God's program for the home and the church. His two most important institutions. The male-female relationship, he says, is to be a beautiful dance where one leads, the other one follows to the music, music of God in order to display the glory of God. If there's, there are not many things more beautiful than a couple that can really dance, where the man leads and the woman follows and we, it looks breathless. But there's, there's not much that's uglier when both are trying to lead. <laughs> These verses demonstrate that Paul would totally reject the suggestion or the notion that women are inferior to men. It would also reject the notion that men have a greater worth because of their God-given divine responsibility to lead. 
Paul says here, both male and female are incomplete without each other. So he harmonizes it. He balances it. He shows us the other side. He gives us the safeguards that would not allow abuse or cruelty or tyranny from a man to a woman. And then he asks his theology responded to. Paul asked the Corinthians in verses 13 through 16. He says, you need to respond to me. Look what he says. Judge for yourselves. <laughs> you got to think through this. You got to act on this. If a wife or woman is to pray with her head uncovered. And then he does this. He appeals to nature. And when I speak of nature, that word means instinct, meaning spirit. Paul is saying here, I'm speaking of the natural instinct of right and wrong that God has planted in each of us concerning our sexuality or our maleness and femaleness, that men and women in some sense have a God sense in them. They know, we know that men and women are different. Now our culture will try to tell us we're the same. They will present unisex but we know men and women are different. Do we not know that? Matter of fact, years ago, I remember on Time Magazine, at the top it had the question, why are women so different? And the subtitle was, because they were created that way, made that way. I was like, duh, right? <laughs> Look, I raised three boys, and I raised a daughter. I can tell you, they are different. Does that mean Joel can't play sports? No, she's more athletic than all the boys. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry, Jess. <laughs> but they're totally different. She never once took a plate of spaghetti and dumped it on her head. <laughs> and they did every time we had spaghetti. <laughs> she never cut the arms and legs off her dolls poured ketchup on them, and set them up in some kind of war scenario. <laughs> they did it all the time. She never shot me with a banana. <laughs> she used full sentences and words. My boys would use barks and growls and hisses when I walked in the door. What animal are you today? Now that's just a small sampling. Paul uses this example. He says, appeals to nature. His is an example of nature. He then uses the example of hair as an indication of whether they are abiding by God's created design for men and women. Now just hold here. <laughs> if, if you have long hair, unlike me as a man, you don't need to go cut it today, okay? But Paul is saying here, we know we just know naturally, instinctively, that around the world, women typically have more hair than what? Men. Matter of fact, I did some research on this. Science tells us this. A woman, I'm not talking about you and your brother, okay? Just hang tight, for Armstrong boys, because you're going to lose most of it one day. Okay? <laughs> and your future wife won't. That's the difference. If women have a year to grow their hair long and a man has a year to grow their hair long, the wife's, the woman's hair will grow a lot faster and longer than the man's. I also found out from science that there are three stages or cycles of hair growth. 
The third stage being the falling out stage, which came fast and furious for me <laughs> at 24. And that's the reason is the male hormone, testosterone, speeds up those three cycles so men get to the fallout stage quicker where the female hormone, estrogen, causes the cycle to remain in stage one, the growth stage, longer. So in some ways, this is not about hair length, but about what looks masculine and feminine instinctly in each particular cultural situation that a man instinctively is to avoid looking feminine and a woman instinctively is to avoid looking masculine. Does that make sense? Okay. So having said all that, set the table, I think we now turn to, Jeff, how does this passage apply to us today as Christ followers? So in doing that, here's the first point. We need to be very careful not to reduce this passage to the behavioral issue of wearing or not wearing head covers. Churches in the West have taken this to mean that a woman is disrespecting her husband and dishonoring God if she does not wear a hat to church. That's where they got this from. It was a straight application. That is not what Paul is meaning here. Here's what he's meaning. There is a God-designed difference between maleness and femaleness. Maleness and femaleness is from God. It is to be good. It is to be embraced. It is to be celebrated and affirmed, not minimized, not blurred, not ignored. Gender, Paul is saying, matters to God. The fact that you are a woman and not a man or you are a man and not a woman, is determined by God and is so important because honestly, it has a lot to do with your purpose in this world. Your gender matters. So we live in this culture that continues to increase the blurring of the lines and is in confusion of gender distinction. And we as Christians are called to shine lights on God's beautiful design of male and female by living and honoring gender distinction. Matter of fact, theologically, God has revealed something of his nature in the two genders instead of the one, of who he is and how he functions. Charles Colson put it this way. Since God has created male and female with different roles and abilities for the propagation and nurturing of the human race, and it assaults God and the truth of his creation when we act as if they are the same. One of Satan's primary deceptions of humans is to blur the lines between male and females. And he's doing it every day in our culture. Secondly, there is a God-intended order for relationships between genders, and this has a particular application to marriage. Now, when you read verse 3, that theological statement about authority and submission, a lot of people, this is the very verse they use to accuse Paul of being a misogynist or a woman-hater, meaning that he had some kind of mother wound that came out sideways when he taught on female-male relationships. 
Paul has said here, though, very clearly, the male and female relationship is not about being competitive, but it's about completing each other. He said very clearly, one female or male is not superior over the other. And so what I want to do is take a minute to define the two terms that we've talked about this morning. One is male headship, and the other is female submission. Submission can be a curse word in our culture. So let's define these as God defined these, and I think we'll see the beauty in them. First of all, men, this is for you. And women listen too, because this is what us men, how we need to be treating you in this application of marriage. So here's headship for the husband. A husband's divine calling by God is to take the primary responsibility for Christ-like leadership, protection, and provision. This Christ-like sacrificial headship at all times keeps the good of the wife in view while regarding her as a joint heir of the grace of life. A male's head leadership in headship is not based on superior abilities or superior intellect, or superior anything, but on God's divine placement. <clears throat> the scripture tells us this man, this headship, this leadership divine placement, he is to love his wife, nourish his wife, cherish his wife as Christ does the church. He is not the Lord over her. This is not a top-down relationship. At the very core, headship means servant leadership. He needs to live with her, as 1 Peter 3, 7 says, in an understanding way so that his prayers would not be hindered, so that God will hear his prayers. So if you're a husband this morning, I ask you the question, are you leading and loving your wife in that way? That is biblical headship. Secondly, women. What does it mean? What does this term submission mean in a godly, God-honoring way? Submission refers to a wife's divine calling by God to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It is not an absolute surrender of her will, but a disposition to and an inclination to follow his leadership. Her absolute authority is Christ, not her husband, so she submits to her husband's outer reverence for Christ. Submit means to give up your desire to control him. Genesis chapter 3. That was Eve's problem, control and to cooperate with him as he seeks to lead your marriage and family, to respect him, to support him, to encourage him, to pray for him, to affirm his masculinity. And all of those, none of those are feelings. They are choices. So here you have an imperfect, sinful husband who's trying to carry out God's design for male headship in a sinful wife who's trying, hopefully, to carry out God's design for godly submission. And both of us, I'll speak for Jen and I, 
are awkward at doing that dance. It is against our sinful nature. So what I have to do is worry about, ask the question, how am I leading and loving my wife as Christ loved the church? And what Jenna has to ask herself is how am I submitting to my husband out of reverence for Christ? Me focus on me, she focus on her. And then we need to have conversation. This is what I want to encourage you to do, to sit down and say to your wife, men, how am I doing? Where can I grow? And women do the same with your husbands. My wife, Jenna, when she speaks at family life conferences on this issue of submission, she defines it another way. She says, biblical submission is for the woman to duck so God can hit your husband upside the head. (laughs) So, there's no room for cruelty and abuse to our wives, men. No room. Lastly, our distinctiveness of gender is to be honored and unmistakable when we gather for worship or wherever we live, work, and play. So here's what Paul's saying. Here's an application to us. How we present ourselves here in the worship gathering or anywhere else as males and females really matter. How we interact with each other as males and females in this worship gathering as Christ followers, whether we live, work, and play, Paul says it really matters. For example, we come here to our worship gathering. We come here first and foremost to God, to worship God, to hear God's very words, to respond to God, and how we act and how we dress as males and females can either aid in that worship or distract from that worship. This worship gathering, Paul is saying, ultimately here, and we'll say in the rest of these chapters, is not about you and your private moment. As we worship God, we also need, Paul is saying, to be lovingly attentive and responsible to one another. Any kind of statement that we make about us, about me, or about you, about calling attention to ourselves in some way, form, or fashion, to call attention in some ways about our wealth, or our bodies, or our superior style, how we present ourselves as people, male and female, Paul is saying, will either help or hinder our worship and winsomeness of the gospel. Paul says, as a matter of fact, in verse 16, that our worship gathering is so much bigger than just Fellowship Bible Church. He speaks of all the churches, that this is a worldwide work of God where the people of God gather for the mission of God. Paul said it affects that. So, I asked the question this morning, how are you doing in these important categories of male and female? Let me summarize uh, this whole passage by a quote from D.A. Carson this morning. And this teaches us how to read our Bible, folks. D.A. Carson, Dr. D.A. Carson says this, Foot washing appears only once in the New Testament as something commanded by the Lord. 
The act itself is theologically tied in John 13. So I ask the question, do we normally on a regular basis wash each, wash each other's feet? Answer what? No, we barely wash our own feet, right? But he's saying it's presented one time in the New Testament, but it's tied theologically to John 13, to the urgent need. Here's why. It's a picture for us, the urgent need for humility among God's people and about the cross. Similarly, Carson says, there's no theology of head coverings, but there is a profound and recurrent theology of that which the head coverings were. In first century Corinth, it was an expression of the proper relationships between men and women, between husbands and wives, and what it means to be male and female. So take a minute this morning to ask the question, so what? So what would it look like for you to apply, for you to take the next steps? Maybe for husband and wife, that's the area of male headship and biblical godly woman submission. Maybe there's other thoughts there that you can apply to yourself. Take a minute to do that.